0: Daniel Pink was with us. Seriously, that Daniel Pink, the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including his latest, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. He has lots of fans, and clearly, Jeff is one of them. Jeff peppered Dan with questions about education and how leaders can learn from the regret research described in the book. Daniel was a wealth of information and well-deserving of his stellar reputation. It was an absolute honor having him join us. You're going to love this podcast. Enjoy.
1: Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. Today is um, special. It's a phenomenal day. And the reason has to do with our guest of honor, who will be uh, sharing the screen with me momentarily. Once again, I am Jeff Rose. We run the Leadership Circle. The concept is leaders are helping leaders and we have systems and structures um, and really a community that really allows leaders to help one another with pragmatic dilemmas and challenges and so forth what we say is don't lead alone and the quote we stole from our pastor which is circles are better than rows well as our leaders know as our listeners know often we focus on you know engaging educators authors, experts, practitioners, and sometimes we also delve into people who write and study and research leadership in a variety of ways, and uh, that's the focus today. Today, in fact, any minute here, we're gonna have Daniel Pink join us. You know who Daniel Pink is, most people do. Um, Daniel Pink is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including the latest, The Power of Regret, which is our focus of discussion today the power of regret how looking backward moves us forward which was published just recently in february his other books include the new york times bestsellers sellers when and a whole new mind as well as the number one new york times bestseller drive and to sell is human dan's books have won multiple awards have been translated into 42 languages and have sold millions of copies around the world Pink Pink was the host and co-executive producer of Crowd Control, a television series about human behavior on the National Geographic Channel that aired in more than 100 countries. He hosts a popular masterclass on sales and persuasion. He has appeared frequently on NPR, PBS, ABC, CNN, and other TV and radio networks in the U.S. and abroad. So he has three children. He lives in Washington, D.C. I learned today he's he's kind of a local in DC. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome Daniel to our screen. Dan, thank you so much for having uh, just being here. It's really generous of you. We really appreciate hey, you being here.
0: Uh, hey, Jeff, I'm glad to be with you.
1: So I, I read your bio. I, I went really quickly. I, I miss pieces. I mean, you were a speech writer for Al Gore back in the day. What did I miss? And just how have you been?
0: Um, I don't think you really missed anything of significant. How have I been? I've been pretty good, you know. I mean, I think, you know, like like everybody else, I've been trying to figure a way out of this, uh, out of the pandemic, trying to continue to do good work and, and contribute in the face of, I'll just utter madness and surprise. So, like everybody else, I'm doing the best I can.
1: Now, I have to assume with this release, though, of, of, of the book, The Power of Regret, you know, your life shifts probably overnight, doesn't it?
0: yeah, I mean I'm out I'm out a lot to I, you know I, the book came out a few weeks ago. I'm out a lot talking about this basket of ideas. so um, and but you know in this in this kind of landscape, i'm I'm you know on airplanes and and talking about it in person, but I'm also doing plenty of things like this through the magic of technology. so. Um, but it's all good. I, you know, it, you know. I, I I think that this is this topic of regret is something that merits a serious conversation. And so, the more kinds of conversations I can take part of, the more kinds of, kind of conversations that I can trigger, um, the better off I think we'll be.
1: Well, I'll have you know, I've uh, not only read the book, I've listened to it, and I've heard you a number of times And uh, podcasts. Is probably some of the things that have been you know published and publicly available. I'm um, I'm not stalking. I'm just interested. And uh, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure. So, you know, so myself, my listeners, we're passionate about education, leadership, and so forth. And so, you know, much of what you have written, A Whole New Mind, Drive, I've loved them. This book is extremely relevant, which we're going to really get into. I guess let's maybe start from the beginning, though, the beauty and challenge of education is that everyone has an opinion and everyone's an expert, right? So um, maybe you can tell us about, you know, your past experience with education and how that's led to maybe what your your current perspective is.
0: Huh, that's interesting. That's an interesting way to start it. Uh, so, you know, I grew up in central Ohio. Uh, I went to, you know, the local public school. I lived um, my I lived two blocks away from my elementary school and my junior high. Was on the floor above that, and then the high school was next door. So it's a pretty small public school district. Um, My graduating high school class was about 200. Um, And, you know, I think it was fairly sort of conventional at at the time. Um, I, as a student, though, you know, not to steer the conversation to regret, though, I have some regrets (laughs) um, because um, I was a And I think there's a there's a lesson here. I was a I was a pretty good, very good student. I have to say I was a very good student, but I don't think I was a very good learner. Um, I was a very good student in the sense that I was compliant. Uh, I knew how to deliver the authority figure, what he or she wanted the way he or she wanted it on time and neatly and for many years. And I think to some extent, even to today, that's the kinds of behavior that we were encouraging. And I, I realized in retrospect, that I did probably more of my actual learning in outside of the classroom. So in things like the school newspaper, or in things like um, like uh, just simply going to the library. Which I, you know, I was fortunate to grow up in Central Ohio, which has a great public library system, and I had a library, public library, walking distance to my house, and I went there a lot, and I just took out books and read in there. And I, and so, so the experiences outside of school, I think made me a better learner. Um, the experiences inside of school made me a better, st- you know, in, in inside of school, I was a good student, but there was no necessary connection to being a good learner.
1: You know, um, there is being a student, there is kind of a, a game to it, so to speak. Right. And some kids are exposed to it and some are good at it and some aren't. I mean, Clearly I don't, you went to Yale for uh, your law degree, correct? Yeah. So we can just make an assumption that you were a good student. Um, But I actually heard a Harvard professor and a lecturer once um, tell us, he said, no one dilemma we have with some of our students is they're number one, they've made it, they're at Harvard and they're over curious about the syllabus and how they're going to get an A. I mean, that's, some of their first focus is, how do I get an A in this course? And the professor's point is, listen, you're at Harvard. I want you to learn, be willing to fail. I don't care what you get. This is about the content, the focus, the discipline, not the grade. And yet he said, I can't deprogram these kids.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great, yeah. I think it's a great way to put at it, look at it, because I think there is an enormous amount of programming uh, of, of these of these young men and women. And I myself, to some extent, was programmed as well. I mean, essentially what we have is we have systems that um, systems that are fairly controlling and fairly rigid. And so what you have is you have the quote unquote good students are compliant. The quote unquote bad students are defiant but no one is truly engaged. And, and I think that my experience is actually not atypical. Uh, what I've found in talking to people, it, it, both at my own, my generation, and even my kids' generation, not, this is not true at all schools, but at many schools um, that, that you have students who are not particularly engaged in the classroom, but are particularly engaged outside of the classroom. And to me, there are lessons there. You know, when I hear from people that teenagers especially are not, um, um, they're not engaged, they don't care, they're, they're uninterested, um, I scoff at that because I say I've seen, take a look at, that, that might be true in your incredibly boring class that you've been tre- teaching the same way since Hector was a small dog where there isn't room for any autonomy, where there isn't room for creativity, where there isn't room for serious inquiry. But you look at these these young men and women on the playing field, they're engaged. You look at them in the school orchestra, they're engaged. You look at them in the school newspaper, they're engaged in the school play, they're engaged. And so you have to ask yourself, what is it about these other activities that is causing engagement that, that is absent in the classroom? And to me, It's a bunch of different things. Number one is that these other things are freely chosen. So no one forces you to play in the orchestra. No one forces you to play on the basketball team. Second, it's collaborative so that, and it's collaborative in a real sense. It's not fake collaboration, like some of these fake joint exercises that we have inside of classrooms. It's genuinely collaborative because if I'm in the orchestra or if I'm in a school play or I'm on the um, football team, my performance affects other people's performance. Their performance affects my performance. So it's, it's freely chosen, it's collaborative. And the other thing about it is that it is real. You're out there. You're putting yourself out there. It's not this hermetically sealed um, enterprise like uh, uh, an essay in class. So when you publish a story in the school newspaper, other people read it. When you put on a play, other people watch it. When you, um, you know, when you suit up for a track meet, other people are seeing you run the 800 meters. And so, and so, I think that there are a lot of lessons. Again, as I was saying before, Jeff. I think that my experience is, is typical of my generation and, and sadly, typical of the current generation. And I don't think that's a good thing.
1: Well, it's, it's not. A, you know, the, the hope is that over time, we think about how we move away from the idea of just driving content to how we create these you know relevant experiences. I, I describe them as hooks. Not every kid, as you know, is driven and maybe passionate about Algebra 2 Trig, right? Some really need whether it be a sport, whether it be the, the, the drama course, whether it be a particular club, that just hold them in school because it's relevant. And by the way, it allows them to fail. I mean, that, that, that Harvard educator was trying to convince kids that the F is the new A. That's what I want. I want you be willing to fail in this course, right? So yeah. and, anyway. That's a
0: very, you know you what know, that's a very hard sell to you, Jeff? Upper middle class parents.
1: Oh, yeah, upper well. middle
0: class parents. Are, I mean, you're a school superintendent. You've dealt with these folks. Upper middle class parents are among the most risk averse um, uh, people uh, uh, around. And so there's so this is a whole, you know, there's, it's, yeah. there's a whole there's a whole set of things here. You know, when you talk about algebra two and trigonometry, I, t- I took tri- trigonometry in, in high school. I took I got A's in trigonometry. You know what? I didn't have a freaking clue what trigonometry was or what it was for. All right and and chances are i shouldn't have been taking trigonometry because i had no interest in being in being an engineer for me it was simply a set of it was a set of um hermetically sealed kinds of um problems with (laughs) a single right answer that i was diligent enough to figure out how to do but had no idea how to apply it no idea and also no curiosity about applying it in the outside world so um you know an algebra you know algebra Listen, algebra is a very important way we I mean, we need we need to think algebraically. all right. We don't need to think only algebraically, but we need to think algebraically. So I think algebra is an important part of of our literacy as citizens and contributors. I don't think trigonometry is
1: indeed. Well, we could probably uncover the challenges and ills of education and potential. yeah, that's easy. yeah, we could probably brainstorm some solutions between the two of us like right, really well, but you know, uh, you know, turning the ship of public education just tends to be this very difficult. Very difficult um, for some of the reasons you've already described. And very
0: difficult. And again, I don't want to. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because I, you know I, I think that in many cases, like to me, I, I think one of the one of the untold stories in America today is the huge number of hidden heroes there are out there in education. Huge numbers of, of individual teachers, especially who are engaging students, who are pushing back against this rigid system. Who are doing things in novel, inventive ways and turning kids, you know, helping kids become learners rather than, you know, as as one writer called them, excellent sheep.
1: Well, let's 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 let, let's delve into this book. Uh, I want to talk about it because after reading it and listening to it and listening to you talk to Brene Brown, even Dax Shepard recently on <laughs> uh, the armchair expert. I, um, it just becomes more and more relevant the more I learn about it. And a few takeaways from my perspective, right? Like I'm, yeah. I'm the rookie is that number one, the massive data sets that you brought to the table to demonstrate your points was extremely impressive. I love this, you know, the four specific areas that you mentioned, foundation, boldness, moral and connection. But the, I, could, I was surprised that it was only love that was really ahead of regret as the powerful emotion you made it when you talked about this in the book. That that blew me away. And so just this concept of self-compassion versus self-esteem, there's so much that's relevant to us as educators. And I guess I'm curious for you is what did you learn um, and when you started this regret journey, there's probably assumptions that you had about it, but then there are these major aha's that you experienced along the way. What are what are some of those major learnings for you that you experienced just as you researched and delved into this you know, massive set of data?
0: Well, I mean, so, so thank you for mentioning that, the, the, that, that question really what amounts to the how do you know question. So if I'm, if I'm going to write a book and I'm going to make claims about this emotion of regret and what it all means appropriate response as you is say how do you know and so you mentioned some of these data sets let me just quickly say how i know and then i'll answer your question directly so i looked at 50 years of research on this emotion of regret 50 years of research in social psychology in developmental psychology in neuroscience and cognitive science a few other fields Uh, because scientists have studied this emotion for a while and they know something second i did a very large Public opinion survey. We surveyed four thousand four hundred eighty-nine Americans in what was the largest single survey on American attitudes about regret ever conducted. So we have some quantitative analysis, and then I also did something called the World Regret Survey, where I just collected regrets from people all over the world. At this point, we now have over twenty thousand regrets from people in one hundred and nine countries. So that's how I know. Now, what are the you know what what did I learn? <sighs> so much. But at a broad level, it's this, that we've gotten regret wrong, that we think that regret makes us weak. We think that we should always be positive and never negative. We should always look forward and never backward. And that is wrong. That is wrong as a matter of science. What that 50 years of science tells us about is that everybody has regrets. Regret makes us human. Regret is one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It's arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings have. It is ubiquitous in the human experience. The only people who don't have it are little kids and people with brain damage and people with severe mental illnesses. Everybody else has regrets. Now, um, that's an interesting point because regret is unpleasant. So you have something that is unpleasant, but that is ubiquitous. Why, what, 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 why would that be? And the answer I think is pretty simple. It's because it's helpful to us. That if we treat it right, regret is also can make us better. That regret makes us human, but done right, regret also makes us better. There's a pile of evidence showing, and this is important for leaders, Jeff. Yes, that 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 leaning into our regrets, not ignoring them, not wallowing them, but confronting them. That allows us to become better, helps us become better negotiators, better problem solvers, better strategists. Help us find better meaning in our lives. Help us um, become better parents. There's a whole array of benefits. So at a top, top, top level, regret makes us human. Everybody has regrets, and regret makes us better. That if we treat it right, it is a transformative emotion, especially for leaders.
1: Well, talk to us a little bit more about how 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 to confront because you know there's sure. probably some healthy ways and some ways that are not as productive. And your your book describes this, but. Talk to us about how do people, whether it be leaders or educators, confront these regrets so that they learn and can be intentional about them in the future.
0: Absolutely. uh, We haven't been taught how to do that. I think that's one of the big, big problems. When I say we not only like middle aged guys like us, but our our children and the kids who are in school right now, we haven't been taught how to deal with negative emotions. And so and so in one hand, as I was saying earlier, we ignore them. We say, I don't care. Yeah, I'm not going to listen to this or we end up getting so captured by them that they bring us down. What we wanna do is we wanna confront them. And the way we confront them is really in three steps. I like to think of it as inward, outward, forward, inward, outward, forward, inward. When we have a regret, we have to reframe how we think about it and the, how we think about it and how we think about ourselves. Um, when we talk to ourselves in the face of these screw ups and mistakes and things, we're brutal. We're vicious in the way that we talk to ourselves. So we shouldn't do that. Instead, we should, we should practice something called self-compassion which is a line of inquiry, a, a, a pile of, of research inaugurated by Kristin Neff at the University of Texas about 20 years ago. Essentially what self-compassion tells us is this, when you have a regret, when you have a mistake, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, right? Treat yourself with the same generosity you would treat somebody else. Recognize that your mistakes are part of the human condition. Everybody does it, everybody has mistakes, everybody has regrets, and also that a single regret, a single mistake doesn't define you. It's a moment in your life. It's not the full measure of your life. So, that paves the way for the second step, which is outward. We should be talking about our regrets, or at the very least, writing about them. When we talk about them publicly or disclose them, it unburdens our it unburdens ourselves of the regret. Um, there's a lot of evidence showing that we're wrong. We think if we if we expose a vulnerability, people will think less of us. There's a lot of evidence showing that's. 180 degrees wrong that people often think more of us. And also reg- when we write about our regrets or talk about our regrets, and we convert this blobby mental abstraction into concrete words, we make those wo- we make it less menacing. And then finally, the final step is, okay, so we've reframed inward, we've expressed outward. Now we wanna move forward. The way we do that is we have to extract a lesson from it. And the way we extract a lesson from it is getting taking a step back and being explicit and systematic about how we do that. And generally that requires some amount of self-distancing. So what we wanna do is, is ask ourselves, you know, what would I tell my best friend to do in the face of this regret? Uh, what, would I, what would my successor do in the face of this regret? Uh, what does the me of 10 years from now want me to do in the face of this regret? And so inward, outward, forward is the path. And once we learn how to do that, it becomes easy and habitual and productive.
1: Dan, do you find that you know this this word regret? I mean, from a semantic, I mean, semantically, people maybe misinterpret and misunderstand. Do you find as though you have to describe why embracing regret is really important that people just Hell don't yes. understand? So, describe that to us because you do that yeah. often in the book. But when people say regrets, they see they see it in such a negative light, but. As you described, that doesn't have to be, nor should it be the case.
0: No, you're, you're exact, that's exactly right. So again, we haven't been taught how to deal with negative emotions. And so, what, so the preferred strategy in many cases is to deny them, to say, I don't have any regrets. I don't look backward. I'm only positive. I don't think negative. And that might feel courageous superficially. It might feel sensible superficially, but it's a terrible idea. It goes, again, it's unscientific. It goes against the science. The science tells us that everybody has regrets. Everybody has regrets, and that regrets serve a function. And so, instead of denying our regrets, what we should be doing is enlisting them because they're powerful ways to—they're powerful ways to get better. I think there's a broader problem here: is that we've been—we've been sold a bill of goods that we have to be positive all the time. And here's the thing: I. We should have lots of positive emotions. We should have more positive emotions, many more positive emotions and negative emotions. I want to have positive emotions. I want you to have positive emotions, but we shouldn't have only positive emotions. That's that's nuts. And and because negative emotions serve a function and and when we line up our negative emotions, the most powerful and transformative and useful one is regret. And we just haven't been instructed on how to use it as a force for good when there are mountains of evidence showing that it can be used for good and should be used for good.
1: So getting back to education, there 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 are these themes that you describe around people regretting certain things as learners, yeah. right? They they look back on their education and they have a series of regrets. You know, we're we're talking to educators talk to us about what you learned relative to educational regrets that people have
0: yeah that's a real okay so that's a really interesting it's a super interesting point so there, there are different ways to think about what we regret and some of it is to think about it in terms of the domains of our life so i have an education regret i have a career regret i have a romance regret and what i found is that beneath the service there were four core regrets that people had irrespective of the domain but that have i think as you suggest jeff special relevance to the domain of education so so one of them are are foundation regrets foundation regrets are if only i'd done the work these are small decisions we make early that accumulate to bad consequences later so it's things like not spending too much and saving too little smoking um, not taking care of our health, and not working hard enough in school. Lots of regrets in this database of 20,000 people who didn't work hard enough in school, who didn't do the work. Second, boldness regrets. Boldness regrets are if only i taken the chance. These are people who regret not starting businesses, not traveling, not speaking up, not asking people out on dates. And I think there's a relevance to education here too, that that we have, to your Harvard point, you, you have, I think, especially at the I actually think at the at the at the a wealthier and more elite ends of the education market, you have incredible lack of boldness. The people who have the most freedom to be bold are often the least bold um, because, you know, they're, they're conservative, not in the political sense, they're conservative in the in the personality sense because they, they and their parents feel like they have something to conserve. Um, and so the utter lack of boldness among students, many students, not all, is, is, is breathtaking. And what happens is 10 years later, 20 years later, they look back on their education and they say, oh, if only I'd taken more risks. The third one, which I think is also really important, is moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing. These, these are mostly regrets about bullying and marital infidelity. Those are the big subcategories of that. But um, we have plenty of regrets of people who cheated in school and now regret it. Uh, uh, and so um so you know i think that has big implications for big implications for education and, and what we have now is we have such an ethic on performance and grades um and by any means necessary that that there's your there students who are taking the, there's some students who are taking the low road and that's wrong and they're going to regret that and finally last but not least are our, our connection regrets if only i'd reached out which are about relationships that were intact or should have been intact, but they come apart and people don't want to do anything about it. And what we also know, I mean, you know this from your own work. But what we also know is that is that education done right is social. It's not solitary. It's the great where 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 human beings really learn is in communities as part of a group um, as and, and because that sense of belonging, that sense of interplay, the relationships we have, those are lubricants. Those are those are. Are catalysts for for learning, and so when we look at these four core regrets: if only I'd done the work, if only I'd taken the chance, if only I'd done the right thing, if only I'd reached out, they are absolutely central to a an effective education to prepare a, a young men and women for the future.
1: So let me let me describe an educational leadership concern I have, and, and get your reaction to it. I um from when it comes to leading a school system, it's complicated work. It's not just teaching. Put, to put it right? mildly. Right? Yes. Yeah. You there's have multiple
0: the, constituencies, none of whom are yeah. ever happy at the same time, and you walk around, including to the grocery store, with a giant target on your back.
1: Incredible target. I mean, not only is there the political ramifications and challenges, but then there's the system, right? Often, extremely large budget people are unaware of. My last budget was $1.6 per year. Then you also have the the issues of you know the infrastructure from the, the transportation to the food service to real estate, you're dealing with a lot of complicated moving parts, not just one discipline to manage a system. So it's hard and then therefore often we're beyond, we're over our skis, so to speak, right? So you face this imposter syndrome all the time in educational leadership and sometimes you react by faking it until you make it and almost pretend that you have it together. So, there is this history of trying to demonstrate proficiency. Mm. Well, in the meantime, the things have changed over the last few years. Right? No one knows how to do this, Dan, in the future, in my opinion. I mean, when you ask, what is education? What should it look like in the future relative to educating kids for their future? Right? Not our past. Well, the last few years have taught us a lot of things for which we don't know how to move forward And in the meantime, leadership beyond education, they're focusing on vulnerability, not proficiency. Hmm. So how do we help educational leaders honestly describe and, you know, be humble and describe, we don't know how to do it. We will search and find the answer, but we are going to have to take some of these risks that create discomfort amongst sometimes populations that are holding either the purse strings or the political power. So I just see this disconnect relative to educational leadership and everything that we're learning about leadership in general. And so the concept of looking, you know, looking and honing in on your regrets and being honest about your regrets in order to learn in the future seems to be really critical to me. I'm curious what you think about that.
0: Well, I mean, I think I think it is at the at the at. I, I think that it's essential that we that we look hard at our regrets, that we forgive ourselves for the mistakes, that we try to make sense of them and that we extract lessons from them. Now, uh, I, I think that's that's a no-brainer and, and education leaders and all leaders should be doing that. Now, with education leaders, particularly superintendents, there's a I think the challenge that you're addressing, Jeff, is how public should one be in that? And and I think that's tricky. Um, I think that's tricky. Um, I do think that, um, that instead of that, that there's a lot of evidence that exposing one's vulnerabilities can enhance affinity that can make you a better leader. Um, I think part of it is not thinking that it's a trade-off between proficiency and vulnerability, that vulnerability can be a way to enhance your proficiency. Or let me put it another way. I think at the heart, you, you mentioned this word too. I think at the heart of both of those things is humility um is 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 coming to the job with a kind of hard-headed muscular humility not a self-lacerating humility saying i'm not worth it i don't know what i'm doing but a direct honest genuine humility so saying i don't know why don't you tell me say asking what do you think? I mean, I think a lot of superintendents are, are good at that. The other thing, when you mention the complexity of it, there, there, there are two different things I think going on here. One of them is the incredible complexity of the job. So, doing everything from dealing with, like, you know, having, like, like in your job, having a massive real estate portfolio to deal with um, and you know, dealing with pedagogical issues at the same time. That's a very, very hard thing. That's a very, very hard thing to do. And so I think what it calls for is having the humility to find and hire people who are way better than you at these things, hire people who are awesome and better than you and get out of their way. And that requires that requires, I think, some amount of um, I think that requires some amount of humility. The other thing is um, Is the humility that the other side of it is the is the more kind of political aspect of the job, um, which is that especially now, because of what's what's happening politically in this country, uh, superintendents have even bigger targets on their back and there are more people aiming at those targets. And um, that terrifies me because I think it's going to drive good people out of the profession. I think that the way you do that is that the way that you you combat that, I think it's really, really hard to combat is through. Um, is again through humility, uh, through honesty, and also by rec- recognizing that it's not about you, that it's about these these students. And so you have to be willing to stand up and take those blows, but do it in the service of uh, the do it do it in the service of the students. That's a difficult thing to do. It's a well, difficult thing to do. Um, and um, but I think that's the I think that's the I think that's the only way.
1: It, it is, and I. I will say though, um, e- even even reading this book, it it did cause me to reflect and think back to um, some of the decisions that maybe I've made in my career and to honestly confront a lot of mistakes that I've made. And yeah. not to the point where, you know, I was beating myself up and I, I no, had to go through a dark room. beating yourself up doesn't do anything. It doesn't work, but it allowed me to think, you know what, I wonder if I were in that seat again, how I could approach uh, the concept of being honest about some past mistakes that I've learned as a leader even though they've had implications for other people to describe that and then therefore how they're going to guide my future decisions or future efforts in terms of say collaborative practices with you know my colleagues. Um, I thought I wish I would have been a little more honest about those things because I think actually people would have trusted me even more. Does that make sense?
0: Yep I think you're right about that and again you know well, the, the, the the key here is that no one ever teaches us how to do those things. So I do think that there is this misguided notion that to be a leader is to project confidence and proficiency 100% of the time. And I think that it's important to, I think it's important to actually be proficient a lot of the time. <laughs> and that being proficient is a way to um, demonstrate, you know, sort of show proficiency. I think that should be the key. But I also think that there are times in in a job as complex as a school superintendent to say, I don't know. And I think that's 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 incredibly disarming to people. Um, um, But again, there's some people out there, especially in education, who are not going to be satisfied unless they you know, uh, you know, unless we ban all certain books and And scrub history lessons of anything um, that that, sh- that shows the United States in a less than perfect light.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a dangerous time to be a leader. So here's here's the last question. Um, most of our processes, Dan, uh, relative to supporting leaders, not just superintendents but just educational leaders in general, are what I call roundtable processes. Right, where leaders are helping leaders. It's a very kind of collaborative network and community we have. This is the one thing that we have on a weekly basis where it's content giving it to them. But let's pretend you and I were sitting at a round table with educational leaders around the table with us. Um, What would be your kind of brass tacks pragmatic advice for them if you were to say, this is what I recommend you focus on specific to leadership based upon what I've learned and written about in The Power of Regret?
0: Well, I mean, I think that so... So one of them is this, the, ma- the main thing is this process for dealing with your own regrets, all right? Which is to look inward and treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, to express outward, to talk about it or write about it, because again, that converts this blobby abstract emotion into concrete words and helps you make sense of it. And third is to extract a lesson from it. And let me give you, let me be, you know, thinking about if you say, you know, I'm trying to decide what to do, ask yourself, what would my successor do? Ask yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do? Ask, my, ask yourself, what would the me of 10 years from now want me to do? So I think that process is really, I think that process is really important. On a, on a day-to-day tactical level, to very much to your point, Jeff, I think one of the things that leaders can do is this week at a meeting, tell the team about one regret that you have. Tell them what lesson you learned from it, and tell them what you're going to do about it that's a potentially transformative conversation because what it does is that it it to me at least it demonstrates proficiency and vulnerability at the same time in a way that is affirming and strengthening and it offers a role model for them to become to become better leaders it's a cliche i know but one of the tasks of leaders is to create other leaders Uh, and so if you recruit great people give them the freedom to do great work, um, get out of their way, but give them a vision and support and feedback and demonstrate some of these qualities and you're going to start minting leaders and those leaders are going to transform things.
1: Incredibly pragmatic. Thank you so much. And uh, Dan, I just want to say thank you for being generous with your time. Thank you for your work. and. Um, I, I consider you a, a rock star, and this is an yeah, honor to be able thanks. to talk to you this way. So uh, I'm I'm just extremely grateful for this time you've you've had with us and had with me today.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I, I really enjoyed the conversation, and once again, I you know I have uh, I, you know I, as as you might know, I'm the son of a public school teacher, and mm-hmm. so I I understand you know how difficult these jobs are in education and my hat is off to anybody who is willing to step up and be a school superintendent and be hassled at the grocery store.
1: Well, I, 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 I knew this about your background. I just don't want to bring out too much because then you would start to question that kind of stalking comment that I had earlier. I didn't want you to think as though, you know, you need to look over your shoulder because you know, I'm dangerous. I'm not, I'm just <laughs> a big fan. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, let me, give me 10 seconds, don't go anywhere. Let me close up and let me just come back and say thank you. So. Um, but, but on behalf of all of our leaders and Cognia Leadership Circle and you know our um, our entities throughout 85 countries, I just just thank you for your time. This is a really big deal for us. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, be well, ladies and gentlemen. I know that you have appreciated this uh, just as much. You should definitely read The Power of Regret. It's it's powerful. Um, very similar to other books that uh, Daniel Pink has written. So. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, educators, thank you so much for everything you do and the noble work you do supporting our kids. Be well.